God of love, we join the people in Jerusalem, crowds clamoring, fearful, anxious, where betrayal and uncertainty hangs in the air. We ask for your power of calm, of presence, of love and justice, and that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts might be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, and let the people say, Amen. The verse that catches my eye in this passage is, Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, this story we just heard, we normally do not get to until Holy Week, until Monday, Thursday. It is not a part of the regular prescribed readings for the year. I like this story. It has many layers going on. It's a tangled mess of a power triangle, a vortex of power, one might say. At one angle of the triangle are the chief priests and their police, who are the religious authorities of the day, worked up into a fury about a rabble-rouser who is challenging their authority, their power, their position, their way of doing things. And right behind them are the frenzied, bloodthirsty crowds, apparently on their side. At another angle, we have Pontius Pilate, the local Roman governor, who's the power for the wide-ranging and controlling empire. And at the third angle, you have Jesus, the self-proclaimed Son of God, calmly and adroitly representing the voice, the will, the embodiment of the divine. It's a fascinating drama, given much fuller treatment by John than the other Gospels, this back and forth between the public conversation out on the balcony with the crowds and the private conversation Pilate has in secret with Jesus. And just a little inquiry, who was Pontius Pilate? He came to Jerusalem in the year 26 as a prefect, a senior administrator. He liked to hang out on the coast in Caesarea, but he always came in to supervise Passover in Jerusalem, staying in Herod's citadel, overlooking all the festivities. Probably two and a half million Jews came to Jerusalem at that time, You might imagine it like Mecca during the Hajj, with crowds swirling around in the midst. But most folks had their eyes looking up, seeing Roman soldiers around, behind, and above them, making sure that the empire had control of what was going on. We heard just two weeks ago when Anna preached how the chief priests had interrogated Jesus right before this, how Peter denied him. But they would wait to go to the government authority. Since Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God and therefore blasphemous, the Jewish authorities had the power, according to Scripture, to stone him to death. But they wanted, for some reasons, to make this an official governmental action. Pontius Pilate, as one historian writes, was an aggressive, tactless martinet out of his depth in Judea. He was loathed in all of Jerusalem, notorious for his venality his violence, his thefts, his assaults, his endless executions, and savage ferocity. No one liked him. 
And most historians see him simply as a ruthless and anxious incompetent. One commentator calls him a backwater bureaucrat, whom we would know nothing about had he not interrogated Jesus. But in the gospel accounts, they show a more human side of this bureaucrat, even some vulnerability, portraying this local Roman governor as someone who was unsure of what he wanted to do with Jesus and manipulated and even being intimidated by the crowds, the angry mob. In the account before us, Pilate wonders why Jesus has been brought to him, and he tells the Jewish leaders, why don't you deal with it yourselves? And yet they stay manipulating Pilate exactly where they want him. Now, over the course of two millennia of Christianity, we have read the Gospels in tragic ways, often ways that blame our Jewish sisters and brothers for the crucifixion of Jesus, fostering the roots of anti-Semitism and using those stories to justify horrifying acts of power. There have even been very graphic depictions of that in films. But this is a misreading of the gospel. It is clear that this was a Roman imperial operation all the way. And like any great empire, or as we call it today, any superpower, the Romans were in charge. Their security presence was high. Their method of execution, their own. One of the real tragedies of this scene, aside from the death sentence for Jesus, is how easily, how conveniently and venally, the religious authorities will get in bed with the governmental authorities. Now, you and I know that the church historically has been both on the good and bad sides of power. There have been seasons in the church's life when it has experienced oppression from the early days of Christianity and currently in places like China and the Middle East. There have also been seasons in the church when it has been too much at the center of things. Say, for instance, in medieval Europe, drunk on its own power, more for itself than for those whom Jesus served. And there have been times when the church found its moral voice and led society with courage, like the heart of the civil rights movement. Or there have been times that the church cowers in the corner, using the excuse that we will only tend to our spiritual lives and not political realities, which is simply a way to avoid things that we don't want to do that are impractical, seemingly so, or very hard. You might think of some of the white church in the pre-Civil War era, when they used the Bible to defend slavery, or during the civil rights movement. This also comes to mind. And then there are times when the church has been so eager to get into the game of power politics, as we've seen with the rise of the religious right over the past 30 years, with many of its members supporting candidates with characters so repugnant to their stated values that it strains our understanding. Now, this power triangle of Jesus, the religious authorities, and Pilate has had me thinking a lot about the nature of power, how it works, who uses it, when and how, where and why. As we advertised to you back in January, there's a course I'm taking along with three members of this congregation, Chad Moore, Sarah Carter, and John Bowman, called Power, Broad-Based Organizing, and Leadership. We've met four times and have one more session. It sounds kind of subversive, doesn't it? I would argue, in true Christian fashion, 
It is subversive. And there's some working definitions going on in this course. The first one is that power, simply defined, is the ability to make things happen. The ability to get things done. One exercise is we were asked to name who we thought the most powerful person of the last century was. We had a variety of names, FDR, Gandhi, Hitler, Bill Gates, John D. Rockefeller, and Martin Luther King Jr. came up. There's another guiding principle in this course, which is that we are constantly, as human beings, working between the world as it is, the world as it exists, and the world as it should be. This is what the prophets talk about all the time, challenging the authorities and principalities of their days to the way that God would like the world. The difference between what we now live and what God's vision of the world might be. And one of the definitions in this course is that in the world as it is, the main currency is power. Often power that's perceived in a zero-sum game of winners and losers. At its worst, this kind of power employs force, bullying, slanted information like fake news and propaganda, blind obedience and loyalty, and lots of meaningless process just meant to bog down the opposition. In the world as it should be, so the tenets of this course say, the main currency is love, relationships, in which our interdependence of our interests and others' interests are recognized and respected and worked on together. Now, I realize this sets up a dichotomy of power and love, which does not mean they are mutually exclusive. As Dr. King said nearly 50 years ago, we have to realize that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love, correcting everything that stands against love. Just to say that again, power at its best is love, implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love, correcting everything that stands against it. Now, this course is following the principles of a famous community organizer, Saul Alinsky. I happen to think that Jesus was a famous community organizer as well. And the principles of this course are that we base any work we do in real stories, the stories that affect us all, how you and I are affected by gun violence, how you and I are affected individually by homelessness or by rising health care costs or insurance companies. It is based on those real stories of pain and sitting in that pain and understanding what's going on and real relationships of care, of interdependence and mutuality that is the basis of any power we build. And then we start meeting in smaller groups, house meetings, just like the early church did, small groups in which you share these concerns, in which you think about what is it you have in common, what do you want to work on together. And then you coalesce those in civic and religious organizations, such as ours, banding together around shared issues. The local incarnation of this kind of organizing strategy is the Greater Boston Interfaith Organization, an organization I've been on the periphery of for about 10 or 12 years, 
and which I would love to see our church get involved with because I think it would help us learn how to leverage our collective power for the things that we believe in and that we believe God wants us to pursue. And that's part of why John, Sarah, and Chad and I are interested in examining this course. This group was instrumental about 12 years ago in bringing forth health care reform in Massachusetts. They also are working currently on a whole list of issues like gun safety, criminal justice reform, fighting gentrification in the way that homeowners are losing their neighborhoods, and addressing rising health care costs, just to name a few. And they're about to do a series of house meetings again to try to reboot and understand where their collective institutions, mosques, temples, churches, faith-based organizations, where they want to go in the direction. Now, the past few weeks, we have seen power emerging among the youth in this country, starting with the well-educated, articulate, and poised students of Parkland, Florida. This past week, we saw a walkout of students in protest, in concern about what is going on in this country about violence, asking for change, demanding for change, refusing to sit back. And this Saturday, on March 24th, there will be a nationwide march. Here it is starting at noon on the Boston Common as a way to raise voices. These are important events, I believe, for us to support if we care about safety, if we care about the power, whether it is naive or growing, of our youth. I believe it is important for us to be there to support them. But I will also say this, that marches are not enough. If we really want to affect change, we have to go through life with more than just a passion for change, but strategies for change. It means more than just speaking out. It requires that we listen. In particular, we have to listen to people with whom we disagree. And we have to be prepared to compromise, to negotiate. It requires some creativity in this area. One of my colleagues who's been working on a nationwide campaign for gun safety actually became a shareholder in one of the big gun manufacturers so that he could go to their annual meeting and speak up on his request for safe gun manufacturing, for smart gun technology. Now, that's a creative strategy. Or you may have heard recently how Trinity and Old South Church banded together against a local developer who was building a skyscraper in their neighborhood that was going to overshadow their churches and harm the buildings themselves, but also block out the sunlight through their stained glass windows on Sunday mornings. When they met with the developer, they said, well, why don't you just change the time of your worship services? That was the right thing to say to get a reaction out of the church people. They asked for $20 million from the developer to help address the needs of their building, but also for low-income housing because of the ways that people are getting pushed out of housing in our city. The developers laughed at them, and the organizers said, well, here's the deal. We're offering to negotiate with you about this. We're going to walk out of this meeting and go to the press. What do you want us to say to them? They ended up getting less than they originally asked for, but any good negotiator knows that's part of the game. They got six million, three for low-income housing and three for the churches. Now, that's just to give you a vision of what's possible when people come together in a sort of broad-based, you may call it subversive or community organizing aspect. But I want to leave us with thinking about our own personal power, the power that I believe has been given to us as our call to worship suggested by the creator of the universe, 
the one who set our hearts in motion, our brain stems in activity. Each of us has a certain amount of power. I'm not sure if we always perceive it as such or if we always exercise it as such. Those of you who are doctors, you have power to heal or to harm your patients. The same for teachers with your students, parents with your children, even students with our fellow classmates. By what we say and what we do, we have a certain amount of power in our midst or with our coworkers or our friends. You see, I believe that it's important for us to know what our personal power is, to claim it, to own it, to know that it is a divine inheritance. In fact, the word that they use in this scripture is a Greek word that means out of one's own being, the being that was given to you by God, the ground of all our being. It is interesting to note that in the interactions with Pilate and Jesus that precede the one we just heard, Pilate is inquiring of Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed me over to you. What have you done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the authorities. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate says, so you were a king. And he says, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. This, I believe, is the essence of divine power. It is beyond the temporal nature of this world. It is beyond us. It exists whether we claim it or not. I believe in a church that has the power to bring up this otherworldly kingdom of God into our midst, a church that puts some muscle behind the words we say each week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, a church that believes in the potential for this power, the power of love, the power of truth, the power of justice. I believe in our ability as human beings to tap into this everlasting power of God. And here are some truths that are often hard for us to acknowledge. Divine power is different from the temporal entities in which you and I participate. For even they, like our time on earth, will pass away. The schools, the companies, the nonprofits, the hospitals and clinics, the offices where we all work will not last forever. This church, the United Parish in Brookline, will not last forever. And a discomforting truth, which I've come to believe, is this American Republic, as much as we love and cherish it and hold it dear, will most likely not last forever, just like the Roman Empire did not last forever. And let me be clear, I have no interest, nor am I advocating hastening that day. In fact, to the contrary, I think you and I have to fight even harder these days for the values that we cherish, the values that God has given us. But I'm declaring here the inevitability of human-made systems and institutions. They do not last forever. But God's power, it will always be there. Regardless what happens to this earth, as long as the sun still shines and the world still turns, the smallest forms of life will reclaim this planet. And it is much more important, I believe, that you and I be in touch with this power of God, this power to love and to heal, to give life, to work for solutions instead of cursing the darkness. 
We need to be in touch with a God that asks us to look out for widows and orphans, for the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the imprisoned, the most vulnerable among us. We need to stand with a God who will calmly stand in the face of ruthless, brutal power, power that is running scared for its life, and say and do the right thing, the truthful thing, even to the point of inevitable death. That's the kind of power I believe that you and I have running through us. It is ours to claim and ours to act upon in big and small ways. Amen.